You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Caleb Wilkinson. So I'm going to read, not sing, the lyrics of a song. And I've chosen this song because it's basically a pretty close modern version of all the wisdom that's packed into Ecclesiastes 9, 1 through 12 that we'll be reading today. So here it goes. He said, I was in my early 40s with a lot of life before me when a moment came that stopped me on a dime. I spent most of the next days looking at the x-rays and talking about options and talking about sweet time. I asked him that the singer, I asked him, when it sank in that this might be the real end, how's it hit you when you get that kind of news? Man, what'd you do? And he said, I went skydiving. I went Rocky Mountain climbing. I went 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu. And I loved deeper. And I spoke sweeter and I gave forgiveness I've been denying. And he said, Someday, I hope you get the chance to live like you were dying. The chorus of of this famous song by Tim McGraw ends with some strange-sounding counsel. Someday, I hope you get the chance to live like you were dying. Why, Why would the man in the song hope for his friend to get this chance to live like he's, like he's dying? Let me kind of ask it another way. If you knew that next Saturday night you were going to get hit by a bus, how would you spend the rest of the next week? Like, with your death in sight, would these next seven days be more shallow or be filled with more depth? There's fortunately not a lot of buses in Frisco, so I'm hoping this doesn't happen to anyone, of course, but this is the whole point of Ecclesiastes. Our loving Heavenly Father wants to move us from death to depth. Your life is a gift of His grace, but you only have it for a moment. One day He's going to call time and take it back. But in the meantime, He longs for us to experience deep joy in it while we've still got it. And we don't need to know that we're going to get hit by a bus next week uh, to, to add depth to our lives today. We, we don't need to wait for the moment that we're stopped on a dime and we're looking at the x-rays to experience the, the joy of life. Our loving Father wants us to receive this gift now in, in our reading of his word. And so in, in these next verses, God commands us all to live like we're dying. God commands us to live like we're dying. Read Ecclesiastes 9, 1 through 12 with me. You'll see it on the screen if you don't have a Bible. This is God's word to us this morning. But all this I laid to heart, examining it it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked. 
to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of men are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no reward, no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your life, your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that, all are, that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time, when it suddenly falls upon them. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Amen? Amen. Well, it doesn't matter how young or healthy or strong you are. God commands us to live like we were dying because your joy itself is dependent on it. And since most of us don't feel like we're dying most days, he sends us the preacher in Ecclesiastes to demolish the illusions we build our life on that, that really uh, limit our joy. They, they, they keep us from it. But realize this, that in his word, God himself is preaching to us. God himself is coming after the illusions we use to suppress reality. We're, we're told this out of love, not, not to overwhelm us with fear or with unrelenting despair, but so that we're enabled to experience joy. This text serves like a wrecking ball, hitting us with three hard but kind blows. The first blow is the certainty of death. And the, the, the second blow is the seizing of, of life. And the third and final blow is going to be the uncertainty of death. So first, the certainty of death. Or to put it another way, th this is certain. You're going to die. In verse 1, he's, he's really just continuing the same train of thought that we left off in chapter 8 with last week. Uh, that, he, that we just can't figure that much out in this broken world. So he continues, he says, But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are in his hand. And so he's left to conclude again that 
though we want to understand how, uh, you know, how God works, his, his wisdom is really unsearchable, and we just don't know. There's large bits of information that he simply doesn't share with us. But, but one thing is certain, one thing we can know, and that's death. Verse 2 says, it's the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and to the evil, to the clean and to the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. Okay, the, the same event he's talking about is death. Poet John Donne puts it simply, he says, earth is the womb from whence all living came, so it's the tomb, all go unto the same. Earth is the womb from whence all living came, so it's the tomb, all go unto the same. You're dying. I'm dying. We're, we're all dying. Death is certain. And as the preacher contemplates this inevitable outcome, he shares a hard observation. He says in verse 3, this is an evil in all that is done under the sun. That the same event happens to all? Okay, first, even though it's, it's certain, death isn't a natural phenomenon. It's a horrid intruder into God's good world. One, one commentator calls it an invincible evil, like a demon-possessed scorpion. And it's even worse it's an even worse outrage to see how it all works because it seems to carry this, this unethical edge to its sting as it happens the same to the wicked and the righteous. It, it doesn't really appar- apparently make any sense. Commentator David Gibson cautions us, if you expect good people to get a fair deal from the Grim Reaper, then you have a very bitter pill to swallow. That's not the way the world works. Death leaves us tear-stained in perplexity. Now, the preacher hints that death is deserved. It's it's not unfair. In in the second half of verse 3, he says, the hearts of the children of men are full of evil, so none of us are worthy of life. None of us are inherently good, but, but that's not really the main point. The main point is death is certain, and more, more than that, death is sad. This isn't a secret. We've either tasted it ourselves, or if you haven't yet, you will soon. Verses 4 through 6 say, But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that's done under the sun. Death is incredibly sad, church. It's not, it's not seen here, or it's not celebrated as a door to immortal bliss, but rather a cold, hard, dark, solid, closed door, a sealed up tomb. And it's so bitter that he says that it's better for, uh, to be a living dog than to be a dead lion. Now, we love our canines at Grace Church, uh, and, and some of us way more than others. But in ancient Israel, the dog was the most despised creature in their culture. And the lion was uh, the most noble creature. And so it'd be like as if he was saying to us, 
It's better to be a living sewer rat than to be the winning Kentucky Derby horse that's in the ground. Death is that grievous. It's a terrible state, and this is how he describes this terrible state. He says they have no knowledge, no wages, no memory, no emotion, love, hate, or envy, and no portion. The opportunity to enjoy all of of the gifts of, of life is completely lost. In his thoughts on this passage, Douglas O'Donnell shares what he calls the most serious comic strip he's ever read. And he found it in in Calvin and Hobbes. Listen to his report. In it, Calvin the boy and Hobbes, his stuffed tiger who comes to life in his imagination, find a baby raccoon that is barely alive. Calvin runs to get his mob Hobbes says, I sure hope she can help. And Calvin, now running away from Hobbes, yells back, of course she can. You don't get to be mom if you can't fix everything just right. When mom gets there, however, she realizes that the raccoon is likely to die. Nevertheless, she puts the poor creature in a box and brings him home. And they keep him in the garage and bring him food and water. Before Calvin and Hobbes go to bed, the boy peers over the lid of the box with a sad expression on his face. Don't die, little raccoon. Please. In the morning, as Calvin is running to the garage, he's met by his dad. Dad, did you check on the little raccoon this morning? Yes, Calvin. I'm afraid he died. Calvin cries and cries in the comic strip. Wah! Wah! After they bury the little raccoon under a tree, Calvin says, I didn't even know he existed a few days ago. And now he's gone forever. The strip ends with Calvin's back to the reader, leaning over to Hobbes and saying, What a stupid world. Death is certain, and death is sad, and it's the lesson of every gravesite and every urn, and if it first confronts us when we experience it, it will be devastating. It will cause you to, to stay in stink, uh, sink with Calvin's pessimistic despair. This world's a stupid place. What a, what a stupid, what a stupid world. Friends, that's why the wisdom here is a gift meant to stop us on a dime. Not not in a hospital room one day, but here and now as we read it. You're dying. I'm I'm dying. We're, we're, We're all dying. Death is certain. And accepting that we come to this end is sad. But it's also far better than realizing it only after death comes knocking on your door because accepting its certainty will enable you to live like you're dying now. And this is the way to living life to the fullest. Now, some of us have accepted death, but, but are so traumatized by death's sadness right now that you've just resolved with Calvin. What a stupid world. 
and the outrage of death makes this conclusion so understandable, especially if, if it's been hitting you close to home, maybe in the, the death of a, a loved one or a, or a recent diagnosis or sickness or, or pain. Your conclusion makes a lot of sense. And if these next six verses, or these six verses that we just read, were all that the Lord says to us, I'd say you've landed on the runway. Is this world stupid? Uh, As senseless as rowing a sinking ship in the middle of the ocean? As we keep reading, we'll see that while it's appropriate to spend some time traveling here in Calvin's conclusion, what a stupid world. We're not meant to stop and live here as a destination. Okay? Being stopped on a dime is meant to lead us somewhere else. Tim, Tim McGraw got it right. He said, uh, he said this. He said, when it sinks in, it got me thinking about sweet time. Preparing to die means thinking about sweet time, about, about how to best live while you still can. So, so how can I live like I'm dying? But what we see next is that the seizing of life comes through the simplest of things. Uh, O'Donnell mentions another Calvin and Hobbes cartoon here. Listen to this one, his description of it. This time the boy and his tiger are sitting on the ground with their backs to a tree. In the first frame, Calvin leans forward and says, I don't understand this business about death. In In the second frame, the drawing focuses entirely on him. And with his arms stretched out horizontally, he asked, if we're just going to die, what's the point of living? The third frame shows them staring at the reader with baffled looks on their faces. And they're silent. Finally, the fourth and final frame, an answer comes from a hungry, a hungry Hobbes. Well, there's seafood. While, while humorous and, and, and light, this actually gets us closer to the truth in verses 7 through 10. It's, it's the second blow of the battering ram of God's kindness to us, and it's the main point of the passage. Uh, look at verse 7 with me. It says, Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Okay, so this is how to live like we're dying. This is the way of wisdom. It's, it's a path a journey filled with joy, and it's life's simple things that are on this path. Now, now this all probably sounds very repetitive, and the reality is that this is the sixth time, the sixth exhortation in the, in the book that we're called to pursue enjoyment in life. It's the sixth time, but don't miss that it's far more emphatic and elaborate than the ones before. These are no longer statements comparing values like before. Let me just demonstrate, okay? So I'm going to put chapter uh, 2, verse 24 up. This is what he said before. There's nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Okay, then the next chapter, chapter 3, 12 through 13, he says, I perceived that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Okay, now, now feel the contrast as I read verse 7 again. Go, eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart for God's already approved what you do. Eugene 
Peterson paraphrases uh, this so well. He, re- he really nails it. He says, seize life, eat bread with gusto, drink wine with a robust heart. Oh, yes, God takes pleasure in your pleasure. Do you feel the difference? There's a moral urgency to pursuing enjoyment here. Okay, Pursuing enjoyment just got heavier. It's a matter of morality, which means that to not pursue enjoyment in life is immoral. Okay, It just got heavier. There's, there's five commands just in this one verse. Go. These are commands. Go. Eat. Drink. Enjoy. Do. Okay, the, the central command is enjoy life. Live it to the fullest. And do this with urgency, like, like right now, right when we scatter from this gathering. Go and, and, and enjoy life. It's, it's, it, this is like a... Uh, uh, an alarm clock buzzing loudly, waking and saying this, wake up, stop sleeping, don't hit the snooze button, get out of bed. It's a call not to get stuck protesting death's certainty and mourning over its sadness. It's, it gets us moving. Go, eat, drink, enjoy, do. And notice something, he's not telling us to go skydiving or Rocky Mountain climbing, or to ride a bull named Fu Manchu. No, we're ter- told to pursue, uh, we're told to pursue joy in the simple things. Go, eat bread, and, and drink wine. Th- these were just daily staples of existence for Israel. And so what he's saying is, go enjoy eating and drinking what you normally eat and drink. Maybe it, sounds, it would sound like this to us, Go, eat your eggs, drink your coffee, and do it with a glad heart. Now, this this list isn't meant to be exhaustive. It's representative. But notice what else it includes. First, what we wear and and how we smell. One, One commentator thinks this is actually a progression from the kitchen to the bedroom with your spouse, as in in smell good and and look good in, in, in the bedroom. And I don't think it's actually that far from it. If, if you look at this, this language, 7 through 10, it's loaded with wedding imagery. But I think we're free to apply it in numerous ways because, again, this list isn't exhaustive of God's simple gifts for us to enjoy. Uh, Gibson argues, he says, white clothes and oil were worn to show joy and happiness. Don't think that because we all will die, it doesn't matter how we dress or how we look. Rather, look after yourself. The world was meant to be a place of color and life and, and beauty. So, so this probably extends beyond even uh, our personal appearance. It extends to, uh, you know, the way we decorate our house and, and our office and the way we keep our, our yard in addition to our personal appearance. Now, a lot of people have recently been asking me, uh, Caleb, uh, how long are you going to let your hair go? Uh, like, when are you going to cut it? And why? And uh, here's my answer. I'm, I'm going on the record, uh, so you can, you can stop asking. Uh, like a good student, I've been reading ahead. Uh, this passage commands us, commands me to pursue uh, color and life and, and, and beauty. So, okay, on the record, there you go. But anyway, how, however you take this kitchen-the-bedroom argument, enjoying life with your wife 
or, or husband for you wives is meant to be way broader than the bedroom, of course. It's a call to enjoy all of life with your wife. And, and note, we're not told to put up with our wife, but rather enjoy life with your wife whom you love because this is your portion in life. Okay, your spouse is your lot and your lot is God's gift to you. And, 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 and so is your husband for you wives. So, so this is wisdom. This is the way of joy. Seize life through your wife. Seize life through your wife and, 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 and through your husband. Not, not a different spouse, but yours. Not, not just like they are. Not, bef- not, not waiting till they improve and, and, and change. Do it today. And, and of course, you, you can extend this to your friends and your family members, your siblings, your, your children, your parents, grandparents, grandchildren. And the final imperative here is about work. He says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom and shield in which you are going. Okay, so before we die, we all get the chance to work at something. That the emphasis isn't so much on what kind of work we do, but how we do the work we do. Work hard and cheerfully at whatever you do. And since this is your only chance, make it count and enjoy the process. Don't, don't buy into the cultural lie that says that there's good work over here and there's bad work over here. All lawful work is good work to be worked hard at and, and, and to enjoy for the glory of God. But, but what can possibly enable us to enjoy these simple gifts in the wake of the certainty and the sadness, the weight of our pending deaths? Verse 7 tells us, for God has already approved what you do. God is like us parents giving our children a gift. What we love about giving the gift is to see the delights on their faces. And the, the appropriate way to respond to good gifts is to enjoy them. To, you're like a child receiving a gift. When you get the gift, you're pre-approved to enjoy it. Be, be the kid and receive it. Heed Peterson's paraphrase, seize life, eat bread with gusto, drink wine with a robust heart. Oh yes, God takes pleasure in your pleasure. God has already approved what you do. But as, as we do, we can't forget uh, the counsel, the, the teaching on God's good gifts that have come with, from the previous chapters in Ecclesiastes. We're only on the path of joy when we treat these things as gifts for joy and not for gain. Okay, David Gibson cautions us well here. He says, in the created world, you can only truly enjoy what you do not worship. The man who makes sex his God and who worship it, worships it discovers that actually what is normal and pleasurable soon becomes inadequate. Not enough. And he becomes chained to a path whereby he begins to enjoy only perversion, which of course is no enjoyment. The woman who makes her family her God and who worships her children discover that they fail her and disappoint her and do not achieve all she wanted them to achieve. And so she's left empty and unfulfilled. 
You can fill in the blanks with every single one of, God, of the good gifts, good things in this world that are listed above. When you worship God's gifts, they will never, ever deliver what they promise and instead will leave you empty and broken. Idols will never fail. Idols will never fail to fail you. One of the best examples or illustrations I, I know of this comes from the movie Chariots of Fire, which is about two runners in the 1924 Paris Olympics. And Eric Little, the, the, the Christian runner, uh, loves running so much that he tells his sister, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. And he was the favorite to win the gold medal in the 100-meter dash. But when he found out it was on Sunday, he refused to race. Harold Abrams is the other runner, and the movie is really about the, the contrast between Abrams and Little. Both of them were striving to win the gold medal. They're striving hard to win the gold medal. But Abrams is doing it out of a deep hunger to prove himself. A deep hunger to prove himself. When he's talking about the race that Eric Little refused to run, he says this. He says, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. That's weighty. That's a weighty 10 seconds. But, but Little just wants to enjoy the gift of running as a way to please God who's already accepted him. So he was free for running and he was free from running. Free to enjoy running as a gift and free, so free from being so identified and thus owned by it that he could step away from it. Tim Keller, who, who recently died, made this helpful observation on the movie that's really stuck with me over the years, especially as I, I used to be a uh, kind of a competitive runner and, and one who probably looked at running uh, much more like Abrams most often than, than Little. He says this, he says, Abrams was weary even when he rested and Eric Little was rested even when he was exerting himself. Why? Because there's a work underneath our work that we, really that we really need rest from. It's the work of self-justification. Most of us work and even use God's good gifts to try to prove ourselves, to convince God, others, and ourselves that we are good people. That work is never over unless we rest in the gospel. Friends, this statement that God's already approved of what you do is the closest thing we get to justification in the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, to the original reader, it's probably just a flashback to the Garden of Eden where, where God laid out a feast for them and said, uh, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden except for one. It's probably just a glimpse of that, but it certainly takes on new meaning after Christ. We, we live after the cross where we know that we're approved by God in Christ because Jesus lived the most approved life that's ever been lived, and he died to bear all of the disapproval our lives have earned. And, and when we trust his life and work, we're united to him, and thus we receive uh, his approval from the Father, the same approval, the Father's very own approval. Th this is good news uh, and, and this good news is the key to us enjoying life to the fullest now. Not only is Jesus the gift of all gifts, 
He's the key that unlocks all the joy of all the other gifts. And so we're in a far better position than the original readers to receive God's gifts for joy and not gain. Because we, we have the key to the treasure box, Jesus, and with him, approval. And so the original readers were, were looking at this text, this verse, almost like through, through an eye hole. They couldn't see that much. You just see a, a little slant with something, something about approval. But we stand on the other side of that, and we get to see the whole picture because we live after the cross. We know the Father's approval in Jesus. Without this pre-approval from the gospel, we're prone to treat any gift from God for gain instead of joy. And we're not only at risk of doing this with our sports or with our work, we're also at risk of doing this with our relationships. So husbands in this room, wives in this room, many of us are neglecting this command to enjoy life with your spouse. And you might say, I'm too busy. I got a lot of work, building a business. Uh, Our kids are really... uh, 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 they have a lot of activities, sports and schools and recitals and all that. And, uh, we're, we're, t- we're, we're, we're busy. We've got extended family here uh, often. We, they live beside us, or, or I'm really uh, serving, uh, maybe serving this church in ministry. Or, or maybe uh, the, you'd say, they're not very enjoyable, Caleb. <laughs> well, well, husband, wife, I beg you. To listen to this counsel from David Gibson. He says, if you're too busy to enjoy the life you have together, then you're too busy. End of story. If you don't enjoy each other, then it is likely that you are simply taking what you can from each other to pursue other goals and ambitions that are never going to give you all they promise. You may use each other to gain something that will turn out not to be gain and lose each other in the process. Now, we often conclude, re-engage our, our small group marriage ministry. We often conclude the last night with a clip from the movie Up. Uh, there's a four-minute clip that starts with uh, a wedding and then shows the entire couple's life together in four and a half minutes. And it ends with the husband leaving the casket at the church, going home to an empty house. It's a powerful clip. I I think it's one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful, four minutes of cinema out there. Because Ecclesiastes is, is jammed into just four minutes. Now, my, my point is, my point is, find yourself in the clip. Husband, don't lose the gift of your wife. Wife, don't lose the gift of days with your husbands. You only have a momentary four minutes to enjoy them. Enjoy it to the fullest. Live with them like you're dying because you are. And they are. One of you is likely going to have to spend some time alone. One day, they'll be gone. Or you'll be gone. So grab each other's hand and enjoy squeezing God's gift to you tightly now. Now. 
while you still can. But you may, may feel ready to do this. Maybe, maybe you're already doing it. That'd be good. Uh, you may feel ready to do all this, though, to go eat and drink, to pursue your spouse, to work hard and enjoy life. But, but our Lord's kindly coming after us with one more blow with the, this battering ram of his text to, to tear down our illusions. And, and, and th- th- these illusions threaten our joy. That's why he's tearing them down again. And it's this, the uncertainty of death. Mainly, it's uncertain how and when you will die. So I'm going to spend a lot less time on this, but it's, it's as an important of a point. I'm going to skip to uh, verse 12. It says, for man does not know. Or right before that, he says, time and chance happen to them all. Then verse 12, for man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Okay, death is unpredictable. Life's filled with uncertainties, circumstances change, unforeseen events happen. You get the point. You can't really know how much time you have left or or, or, or whatnot. And he gives this vivid illustration to kind of demonstrate this, you know, about the birds and the fish. You know, birds landing, or maybe for rest or food, don't land if they sense danger. It, it blindsides them when they get ensnared. They don't see it coming, and then all of a sudden they're taken, and then it's good of dead. Same with fish. Fish don't swim into a net that they can see. Uh, they're blindsided by the trap, and they're taken, and as good as dead. Death is certain, and it's sad, and it's often sudden, even very sudden. And the main point is to live like you're dying now while you can because you don't know how and when you'll die. Life's not a sports game where we know what quarter we're in, where we, where we see the clock and we see how much time is left on the clock. And the book of James says the, the same thing, really, and, and it gives us divine inspiration and response. James 14 says, come now. You who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Okay, so if you're young, especially to you, if you're young and strong and and healthy, and you're sacrificing like crazy, maybe to excel at school, or, or build a business, or maybe climb the ladder at work, and, and even subconsciously thinking to yourself something like, I'm doing all this to build a life that I can enjoy one day out there. Take heed, friend. Take heed. You're in danger, because that day is not given. That day is not given, but the good news is that it doesn't need to be for you to experience joy today because the path of joy is through the simple things in life that are available to us all food drink life with your friends your spouse school or or work don't don't take a risk on missing out live like you're dying today even as you study even as you you build your business enjoy the gifts scattered on the journey because again arriving at the destination is not only not a given it, it's only going to be the same things there waiting for you in the first place. So what makes you think that if you haven't learned to enjoy these simple gifts now, you're going to get there to that destination you're building for and all of a sudden be able to flip a switch and say, oh, now I can enjoy them. 
What makes you think that? They're available to you now, today. Church, God has gone after us with three kind blows to send us on this path of of joy, to help us live like we're dying by fully enjoying the simple things in life. But, But he also uses the blows to redirect our gaze from thinking that life is all there is. He uses them to make us long for for more than we can see with our eyes. Okay, the, the certainty and sadness of death and the uncertainty of when and how we'll die are both meant to dislodge us from finding our, our hope and our security here in this life. And he also uses the good gifts to do so, not, not because they're so bitter, but because they're so good. Gibson writes this, he says, Those without Christ often abandon themselves to eating and drinking because sometimes it looks as if that is all there is to do before we die. Those who love Christ cherish eating and drinking because it looks a little like what we will do after we die. Now, I like Tim McGraw's song, but I think most people take this as a call to seize life because that's all there is to do before we die. But Christians go and eat and drink and enjoy because it looks a little like what life will look like after we die. You see, these gifts are music from another land. They're care packages from home aimed to satisfy us, yes, but also to make us homesick. And they make us homesick because they smell and taste and feel and look like home. The home that none of us have yet gone to, have none of us have visited. That, that, they look like that home that, that we've never been to, but those in Christ are headed toward. I mean, let, let's look back at that, that wedding imagery. I skipped over it. There's a lot of wedding imagery in verses 7 through 10. It's filled with food, drink, white garments, oil, a husband, and a wife. Could it be because life's simple things offer a foretaste of a wedding banquet that's soon to come? Where we'll walk down the aisle to meet Jesus face to face and be engulfed in love itself? Could it be that that life's simple gifts are echoes of the beauty and the magnificence which he has purchased for us, his bride. In this case, God's good gifts are to be enjoyed like a a table in the midst of vapor. Not because that's all there is before we die, but because it's a foretaste of what life will look like after we do. So that means that every meal together, every drink with a friend, every night with your spouse, every day at work is an appetizer for the meal to come. So enjoy it to the fullest because God's already approved you in his son Jesus and thus you're free to enjoy what's here. Not, not, as, not for gain, but for joy. So let's go and let's, let's live like we're dying because when we do, when we do, we're living like we will after we die with him. I'll join us forever. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.